Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Professor Francis Saparovich is a biophysical chemist and deputy director at Bio21, the Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute at the Faculty of Science, University of Melbourne. She's been a pioneer and trailblazer for women in STEM, and recently the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry awarded her one of 2017's 12 Distinguished Women in Chemistry or Chemical Engineering as part of International Women's Day this year. The word first features prominently in Frances's life. First woman to be Associate Professor and Reader in Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. First female professor in chemistry in Victoria. First female chemist to become a member of the Australian Academy of Science. First female head of the School of Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. And trust me, the list definitely doesn't stop there. Professor Frances Saparovich sat down with our reporter Dr Andy Horvath to chat about her passion for science and to talk about, amongst other things, biophysical chemistry, Broken Hill and boys. Take us back to when Francis was at school. What were you like? Were you always into science? No, I wasn't. Uh, and that's the thing that uh, I was into everything except sports. So uh, I was a migrant child and I just read everything because I wanted to be the same as the, other, as the other kids. And when I got interested in science, it was when I was going from year six to what was then year one high school, right? Year seven. And I bought the Messel textbook and I read the whole thing over the summer and I thought it was wonderful. But the real reason I did science, there was more boys in that class. <laughs> My parents wouldn't let me go out with boys when I was older, you know, right until, you know, 18. And so this was one way I could get to meet boys. And uh, I got a lot of attention. I was the only girl in both the physics and the maths class. Way to go, Frances. <laughs> So you did it for social reasons, but no doubt it captured you because you continued on in science. You chose to go to university and study science? I chose to do um, physics, maths and philosophy at the University of Sydney, but I dropped out after three months. How yeah. come? I think there was a big change going from Broken Hill where I knew almost, oh, you knew the people who mattered, right? You knew everybody. And then I came to Sydney and it wasn't what I expected. I went to university and I was lost and I didn't know anybody. And the other thing was too, because I did advanced maths and physics and they got me to do year one and year two university at school, right? So when I went to uni, it was kind of boring. Not only was it socially not very exciting, I mean, the work was just what I'd already done. So I dropped out after three months and joined the CSIRO. But again, by accident, I decided, you know, I didn't want to be a hairdresser. And I they were looking for somebody to, it was called a junior technical assistant, but basically it was washing up in the microbiology lab. And I joined CSIRO. So there you are as a lab technician washing stuff. What happened then? I was very good at washing stuff. And so I used to finish by lunchtime and then I went to help in different labs. And um, what really got me motivated to study, it wasn't so much the work in the labs, is I had a child and I realised I'm a single mum and I'm not going to go very far without an education. So I had to work hard now because I dropped out of uni. 
And so I um, did a TAFE course in biology, biology technician certificate. And I did that. And then it was wonderful. You know, I got a technical officer salary. So I was, you know, rolling in money now. And um, <laughs> so um, I, I was getting better and better at the microbiology side of things. And um, there was a new person starting and he was doing NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. And I didn't know what that was either. But the people realized that I like maths and physics and they encouraged me to go to this other lab and apply for a job, still in CSIRO. And I got it because I acted very interested in NMR despite not knowing really what it was. <laughs> and I ended up loving NMR. I Great. Really did. And Give us a little Cook's tour of what NMR is. Well, most people know about magnetic resonance imaging, mm -hmm. MRI, but that really developed from NMR. NMR is nuclear magnetic resonance, but they drop the nuclear term because people think that means radioactive, right? So you just call it magnetic resonance imaging. But it's based on the same principle, and you map in MRI, you map the nuclei in the body. You basically map the hydrogen and water, for example, and um, fat. Mm. So <laughs> it's a better way of looking at cells. Yeah, it's a good way to look at cells. But what I do is I actually look uh, at the distances between atoms and do the three-dimensional structure and working out what's next to what. And then we're able to build a three-dimensional structure of a molecule, for example. And views into the molecule give us insights to how things happen. This is your entry into chemistry, right? Yes. So what I like to know, and you know, it took a long while to get that there, but I like to know how things work, right? And I've mentioned that to you previously. And I'm looking at how um, antibiotics get into cells, and I'm also looking at their structure actually within a cell membrane. And I'm also looking at amyloid peptides from Alzheimer's disease and trying to do the structure of these peptides, these small proteins, in membranes. And the way that you can do that is using nuclear magnetic resonance. Other techniques are suitable for crystals or things dissolved in solution, but the particular sort of NMR that I do is applicable to molecules in membranes and even molecules in cells. Francis, you're a professor of chemistry. So how do you describe what you do? I describe it as biophysical chemistry, and most people like to know what you're going to use this knowledge for. So, for example, if you're looking at antimicrobial peptides, which are a form of antibiotics, and you look at how they work, and you can then design better molecules, right? You can make them more selective. For example, most antimicrobial peptides not only kill bacteria, but they also harm our cells. And so what you want to do is make them more selective, select for the bacteria and not get be attracted to our cells. And by understanding their structure and where charges are, opposites attract, for example, Bacterial membranes tend to be more negative. Antimicrobial peptides tend to be positive, so you can see the attraction. Oh, so there's a bit of static stuff yeah, going so on there. there's a bit there. of, you know, physical chemistry. But, yeah. You know, I call it biophysical chemistry. So that means I'm not very good at anything, but, um, yeah, I try to be better. <laughs> As a professor of chemistry, what have you seen that's changed dramatically in chemistry in your particular field? In my particular field of, of biophysical chemistry, and it's applications to structural biology, the big development is cryo-electron microscopy and doing the structures of large proteins in membranes. That's the big development. And that has led to better understanding of how drugs interact with cells or what has been the sort of major application of that particular work? Yes, again, it will be drugs interacting with receptors. So about 40% or even higher of drugs 
actually interact with membrane proteins. Okay, and these membrane proteins, their structure is very difficult to do in solution because they're so big and they don't tumble, and you can't get nice spectra. That's what I look at. And what you can do is um, look at them actually in membranes, and you take like lots of pictures, and you put these pictures in bins, and you add them all up, and you look at the structures that you're getting from lots of molecules, and try to see how these molecules change when they interact with drugs. Also, look where the binding site is, and then you can make it a drug that's more specific and that goes to a particular binding site in a particular membrane protein. Wow, this is a whole universe that's even hard to imagine, but it's all going on at the level of molecules in the cells. Where is chemistry going? What would you like to see in the future if, if I gave you unlimited funds? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, um, if I had lots of money, what I would like to do is do more NMR experiments. So when you do cryo-EM, you look at things frozen or you look at things dead or you look at you know sections of, of um uh, organisms. But what I would like to do is do the structure of molecules in live cells. And we're already starting working on um, doing the, the structure of antimicrobial peptides in um, bacterial cells. And so I'd like to put money into buying uh, more equipment to do dynamic nuclear polarization, NMR, where we can transfer a, a magnetization from electrons to the particular molecules that we're looking at. And we can get a, a signal hundreds of times bigger, which means that we can get our NMR experiment done thousands of times more quickly, and so the cells will still be alive while we're doing them. So I'd like to be able to do this in uh, bacteria, which are very small compared to uh, our cells, and then other people, I think, will then apply this, these techniques to eukaryotic cells or human cells. And doing it in live cells is really important because it gives us an accurate picture of what's going on chemically. Yes, and also, you know... We get beautiful structure from crystallography, for example. But when you're looking at crystals, what you're looking at is highly concentrated solutions and you're looking at how molecules pack together. And it is pretty close to the solution structure, but it's the subtle differences which are important. And, you know, and if you're looking at NMR solution NMR and you're looking at very dilute solutions or very dilute concentrations of the particular molecules of interest, then they're not suffering from molecular crowding. So, you know, it's very important to look at things in the right environment because the environment modifies the structure. Francis, tell us about the tension between curiosity-driven research, because I know you've had an experience in that, and also highly applied research that's funded according to particular needs of the government or whichever funding body is allowing us the money. And I think, you know, uh, directing research is really difficult because you don't know what's going to work. And so we, with me, I'm driven completely by curiosity. But it's actually what I find fascinating is when I do work with industry, I do find their problems fascinating and I'd like to help solve them. But what happens is you find what their problem is and they fix it. And you would like to keep working out why that was a problem, but they've changed their minds, you know, because it's not what it is. And so I think curiosity research is what does lead to wonderful discoveries and serendipity is a lot of it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't always search for something. You've heard that expression when um, I think it was Faraday gave a talk at the Royal Society, right? And he was talking and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is like the treasurer, right, was there and said, what use is this electricity? And Faraday said, I don't know, but one day you will tax it. 
And you know, so you know, at the time, you know, we didn't know what it was useful for. And again, you know, I did the structure of one of the B toxins, melatonin. And you know, I don't think that you know, that was more. I was doing it to show that I could do the structure of this small toxin, small peptide, in a membrane. And um, you know, people are looking at how they can target melatonin. Attach it, you know, the silver bullet type of thing. You get melatonin, which is a toxin, which kills cells. But you stick, for example, an antibody that goes for a cancer cell and you want it to go to the cancer cell there and then kill the cell. But there are various problems because these are proteins and enzymes break it down and we have to understand what to do to make that not happen. Tell me at the time you actually put a flag on the moon. You actually found the smallest fat globule, Francis. How did that happen? Yes, and, and that, you know, I was working at CSRO uh, Food Research and we were looking at how different lipids, you know, affect the phase transition of membranes. So just like ice melts to water, membranes also have melting points. And if you change the length of the carbon chains in the lipids or the number of bo- double bonds, the melting point changes. And they were looking at this from the viewpoint of tomatoes when, you know, they... Um, you know, if there was a frosty night, then the um, membranes, terrible things happened to them because they went below their phase transition and things broke and leaked and went all soggy. And so we're working on these things. And then we started looking. And again, you know, we're looking at, you know, what is the smallest size that you can pack these lipid molecules into? So if you take these lipids, which are in all cell membranes, and you put them in water, they spontaneously form like a football with water on the inside and water on the outside. And they have a fatty layer, but that fatty layer has a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic area. So So water-loving and water-hating. Got it. So the hydrophobic part is the oil bit in the middle, and then they have these little hydrophilic head groups which are on the outside, and they're they're facing the water. And so we were looking at them, and we found that the smallest size you could make was with a 10 nanometer radius. So that is 10 to the minus 9 of a meter, and I don't know what that's useful for, but we found that out. <laughs> <laughs> and we also found out, you know, the ratios of uh, the, the uh, fatty acid chains. There was more unsaturated. If it's more unsaturated, then it melts at, at a lower temperature. So, you know, in theory, they could grow in a colder environment. <laughs> and no yeah. doubt someone uses yeah. that knowledge today. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, are there any misconceptions that you encounter about chemistry or about your field that sometimes you find yourself trying to go in a bat for? I even had this misconception. I thought chemistry was all about synthesizing molecules. And I thought you had to learn the names of everything and the elements. And and I just did not want to do that. I did not uh, find that particularly interesting. I'm sorry. You know, and um, I did have a foray into synthesizing a compound. I wasn't very good at it. And um, I really prefer the physical chemistry side of things. So I think people don't realize how diverse chemistry is and how it goes, you know, from uh, synthetic, inorganic, biophysical, physical, materials. It just crosses so many things. And we've heard the cliche about it being the central science. And, you know, when I was a physicist, I thought physics was the most important thing. But now I call myself a chemist and I think it really is the most important thing. You're going from atoms to molecules to biology. Yeah. What's been the most eye-opening experience in the world of chemistry? Just how fundamental it is to, to the sciences. It's fundamental to materials. It's fundamental to biology. That's the thing. I I really didn't understand that previously. Francis, talk to me about inspiration and 
both your sources of inspiration, but also how you inspire others. If I go back to, to what inspired me, and I really do think it was teachers, and I still remember, and I'm going to actually mention her name. I, when I was at Alma Public School in Broken Hill, Mrs. Ashman, you know, she made me feel that I was good at school and you know, really encouraged me and supported me. And then when I went to high school, her husband was the maths master, so Mr. Ashman. So then Mr. Ashman did the same thing when I was in high school. And I think I suffered from not having a mentor when I went to university. And that was kind of why I dropped out, right? And so I think mentors are very important. And at CSIRO, I mentioned, you know, I was encouraged to apply for this job with the guy who was installing an NMR. And so, you know, there's people who tell you and make you feel that you can do things. And so that that was important at CSIRO. And then, you know, telling me to keep going with my studies. And then when I came to the University of Melbourne, and, you know, it was the first time I was in a chemistry department <laughs> and the, um, the support of the head of school, Bob Watts, and others in the department. You know, having these people really make you feel that what you're doing is good and it's also valued. So you felt championed and no doubt you champion others as well. I'd like to think so. <laughs> so um, I'm just sort of thinking today I had coffee from with a former student who was coming down from Wollongong. And, um, you know, so um, and I feel that, yes, we do uh, talk about careers and, and the right moves. This morning I had to write a letter, a visa application for a, um, a student who had just finished his master's. And I do like to uh, support women, especially in the sciences, and it's great to see what's happening at the moment where people are actively talking about it, actively encouraging, making women more visible. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had to really push to get a woman speaker. Now, Francis, you've won an award and I want to know all about it. It's going to sound like bragging, but I've won several. But I'll tell you about the most recent one. The most recent one was being uh, inducted into the honour roll of women for Victoria. And to me, that was such a humbling experience. So, you know, I thought it was great that I got in. And then I read about the other women and I said, how come I got in? And I was terribly, what, what is that word? The imposter syndrome, right? So we're having our award day. And, you know, I was just so overcome. That was very awesome. And then one of the women's partners came up to me and he said that his wife was too scared to speak to me because I was so clever. And I th I, then I thought, oh, my gosh, they feel that about me? And it actually made me feel more confident. I went over and spoke to them. But let's change that one. What I wanted to say is I also got an IUPAC, Distinguished Woman of Chemistry Award. And that is, uh, yeah, there's about 45 chemistry associations around the world. And every Women's Day, International Women's Day, they announce 12 women as um, distinguished women of chemistry. So now I'm distinguished. And the other things that I'm proud of, you know, I'm very proud that I was the first woman elected to the Academy of Science as a chemist, 2012. And I was the fir third woman professor of chemistry in Australia in 2005. And I think that was the first one in Victoria. So it's all pretty recent. Francis, next time we look at some sort of everyday object, and I'll let you choose what that is, what would you like us to think about? So first, choose your everyday object, and then what would you like us to think? Well, one of the things that always surprises me is that people are not or claim not to be interested in science and technology, yet every day they're using their mobile phone and the amount of science that went into that, right, the physics and the chemistry of making that device. And, 
you just have to appreciate science. It's, you know, what pushes our society forward as well as the wonderful cultural things that I enjoy as well. Thank you, Francis. I definitely will think about the physics and the chemistry of my phone. (laughs) (laughs) And congratulations on your awards. Thank you very much. Thanks to Professor Francis Saparovich, biophysical chemist and deputy director at Bio21, the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 30, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production by Dr Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes or Wooshka and check out the rest of the episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.